Okay, welcome back to the Three Left Show. Of course, that wasn't really a break. You, you've been listening to the Three Left Show. I mean, I'm Dan Platt. So, I'm going to talk about transportation issues. First, I'm going to reprise, no, revisit, a the last episode that I did relating to this was called Transit Angst. And I made mention of an article from Vice called Abolish the Driving Test which um, at the time was a bit redundant in what it was talking about and its message. But this is a new episode. So I'm going to start the episode with this because it kind of basically outlays the structural problem or issue at hand, which is that car dependency is just an insurmountable problem. Rather, you can't fix any issues that are involved with mass car you know, car culture, mass driving, whether it be environmental issues, the deaths that it causes. These You can't do anything about these issues because of the car dependency. And there's many things like that in American life. So let's go into it, and I'll summarize for the rest of the hour. For almost a century, U.S. drivers have performed a ritual that supposedly serves as the linchpin for road safety efforts. But we have no evidence it works, and a lot of evidence it doesn't. Written by Aaron Gordon. First, the intro. In the early 2000s, either 02 or 03, can't precisely remember, Stephen Budzin was taking his driving test in San Francisco. He aced everything despite the city's notoriously tricky roads. He pulled the car back into the DMV parking lot, perpendicularly parked, and perhaps feeling the confidence boost from a job well done, decided to straighten the car a bit so it fit perfectly in the spot. In the process, he almost ran over a family. Quote, I hadn't even looked to see if there were people behind me, Bodzin recalled. I felt pretty sick about the whole thing and frankly still do. Despite this, Bodzin somehow passed his driving test. After living abroad for many years, Bodzin's license lapsed and he had to retake the test in Colorado. Complying with Colorado law, Bodzin came to a stop at a light with sufficient distance from the car in front of him such that he could see the rear wheels. But his examiner, who was a deal shorter than him, couldn't. Bodzin failed his driving test because the examiner said he didn't stop with enough space between them and the vehicle. So it's showing the contradictions there between these various tests, how inconsistent they are. Uh, Just an anecdote, but there is more science to actually back it up. So last year, in the early days of the pandemic, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp made national news when he decided to suspend driving tests, thus granting new licenses to people without having them take one. Many, including safety experts, thought that this would result in more irresponsible driving, uh, causing mass carnage. Now, of course, during the pandemic, there was a, a large uptick in irresponsible driving and road deaths. But is that caused by lack of driving tests? Rebecca Wiest saw the news too. She studies driver safety for the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety uh, with a particular focus on young drivers. But she had to admit to herself that she didn't know the impact this decision to suspend driving tests would have. Wiest decided to look at the existing research on the subject, only to find, surprise, surprise, there wasn't much. There was no good studies on whether driver's tests improved road safety. It seemed to her that likely because of the expense and difficulties involved in doing a good study, no one had bothered. Still, this struck Wiest as a glaring omission. The driver's test is a linchpin of U.S. road safety efforts, period. The underlying concept of the driver's test is that it weeds out dangerous drivers by granting licenses only to those who have demonstrated that they can knowledgeably and safely operate a vehicle. Short of that, it is at least requires everyone to learn necessary skills. But, as most people understand, at least on a subconscious level, the driving test doesn't really accomplish these things. Nearly all of us has taken one. Nearly all of us have taken one and have also driven like idiots at one time or another. And we see people on the road almost every day driving as if they have forgotten everything that they were ever taught. Speeding in crowded areas, pedestrian areas, urban areas really, driving more than 25 miles per hour in any urban area basically counts as being reckless to me, controlling uh, the wheel with their knees while eating, looking down at their phone, and so on. Nonetheless, as a society, we have internalized these assumptions about the merits of the driving test. 
For example, in 95, National Highway Transportation Safety Admin study, an administration study found that 86% of those surveyed considered driving education and license tests very important to ensure drivers behave safely. Only 2% thought they were unimportant. The 2% that are actually maybe thinking about it. Yet, there is no evidence drivers' tests accomplish anything at all. So it goes into Wes, um, Wes, um, her investigation. Let's see. By and large, licenses are suspended. Oh, yeah. So then it goes into basically how uh, most people get their licenses suspended, not for reckless driving, but by basically being too poor to pay fines. So they lose their license. So it's basically just keeping the poor from driving, not the reckless. So it's time to drop the pretense that driving tests and the associated bureaucracies that administer them have societal value as in well past time to imagine a better way to grant and revoke permission to drive vehicles for the 21st century. Or as Bodzin put it after recounting the test he passed despite almost running people over and the test he failed because his examiner was shorter, shorter than him, driver's tests are a disaster. Uh, we like to believe the licensing process stops dangerous drivers taking to the road. If they drive badly, they don't get a license. If they don't have a license, they can't drive. But that isn't really true. In fact, the driving test is one of the lowest stakes tests you can ever take in your life for the very simple reason that you can retake it as often as you like until you pass. California has some of the strictest rules, limiting people to three retakes. But even if a person fails all three, it just means that they have to start the process and pay the fees again. Wouldn't it be great if high school worked like that? In any state, a person can also read... Well, some teachers do do that. Many do, actually. Uh, they can venue shop if they didn't like the first DMV they took it at. They can go to the suburbs or the exurbs or rural area because it's always going to be easier there. I mean, just you just have more space, so you're just not going to be... You can make mistakes, and it doesn't. you don't even notice. Odds are a, friendly or a friend or family member will tip them off to a lenient DMV that is easy to pass because some DMVs are tougher than others. And like any test that is judged by arbitrary metrics, some examiners are easier than others. So it's like there, there is no national standards for this because it's basically set down by counties, which is kind of, this, this goes into a number of policies like transportation and other in planning, really, which will be mentioned in the housing one that it really does need to be set at a regional level. This is where I'm a little less anarchistic and or decentralization about things that um, obviously policy can be created in a decentralized fashion democratically, you know, but, but the planning and, and, uh, and standards and things should be made at a regional level, not county or God, God forbid even municipals. It is obvious states want you to have a driver's license by making it quick and easy to retake the test if you fail. Nearly half of states essentially have no waiting period, allowing failed testers to retake the next day or they can, or as soon as they can get another appointment. The third, a third of states require a week's break. Only three, which would be Oregon, Arkansas, and in some cases Tennessee, make people wait a month. Nearly all driving tests are scheduled to take a half hour or less. Some, like in Texas, Ohio, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, North Carolina, they take 15 minutes. That same study also examined the failure rates by state. I think it also took, that's how long my driver's test took. It's essentially just going around the block, parking at the you know, one end of the block. Anyway, um, not the block, but it's like a neighborhood with a lot, not a lot of traffic going through it. If you want to pass your driver's a driving test, take it in Ohio, which has a failure rate of just 4%. Utah. Minnesota, Connecticut, New York, and Maine have the highest failure rates, ranging from 33% to 40. But that doesn't mean one out of every three people fail the test in these states since one person can fail multiple times. Nothing is stopping them from taking it over and over again until they pass. So now a little bit, um, I think it goes forward, yes, to the history of the driving test, going back to the 1920s, of course. Then, as now, the tests themselves varied across the country, but two key aspects of those early tests still serve as a basis for the logic of driving tests. And it kind of lays down this argument that it was like uh, that the driving test was meant to be a psychological test, that there's this clumsiness factor that you, that's what you weed out. The test should just test whether someone's clumsy or not. 
which doesn't actually exist. Um, and that, you know, cars back then were very complicated and there were actually a number of technical skills when needed to operate a car. Now you, it's, it's easier. It's as easy as operating a washing machine as he writes. A driving test designed to prove someone is physically and technically capable of driving a car made sense in 1920 and maybe even 1940 and 60, but it makes little sense today. Or as University of Chicago Public Health Sciences professor Akavi Bahala, yeah, Bahala, told Motherboard, I'm certain I can teach my four-year-old to drive my Prius. If that sounds unlikely, consider the hundreds of battery-powered miniature car children's toys available for purchase. Pow, 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 wheels. Beyond proving people knew how to drive, the test was also designed to weed out dangerous drivers, a purpose we still ascribe to it. According to, so basically saying, like, all of these biases and the driving test itself was established a whole century ago. Likely, like a lot of things in the 19, in the interwar period, under very scrupulous circumstances and standards. This was when a majority of Americans believed in eugenics in some form. But as humans so often do when a reason they believe in something is disproven, people simply invent a new reason to believe them. Instead of weeding out accident-prone drivers, driving tests became a method of evaluating whether a driver had been sufficiently trained, something that could be improved and refined with instruction. While this may sound like a subtle shift, it meant the driving test was no longer a means to keep people from ever being licensed due to their personality type, but merely a way to delay it until they had their instincts corrected. An illustrative example of this transition comes from a 1941 article that it goes into, which I didn't find very useful for his argument, because it's just a, well, it's, it's, a, it's an example. Because it went into basically the instruct, you know, this, it's all it, it relies on the the quality of the instructor. You know, good instructor will mean better drivers. But if you've taken the you know the AAA four hour that's required before you get a license, it's, it's pretty basic. You know, it's hmm. even though driver education is different from the driver's license test itself. It's still worth exploring what we've learned about driver education over the decades, and not just because it has been studied more than the test itself. So then it goes into kind of an actual study that's been done, basically reviewing that, like, we had... Let's see if I can summarize it. Let's see. One review of several studies found that there was little to no compelling evidence that driver training among teen and novice drivers has any positive effects on road safety. Another literature review funded by a pharmaceutical company that's AstraZeneca, which wanted to know if it should keep paying for employees to receive driver training, also concluded the effectiveness of current driver education programs is as yet unproven. But the most famous study about driver education was the DeKalb County, Georgia experiment. In this landmark study in the early 80s, researchers randomly assigned about 16,000 teens to a two types of driver education and a control group that received no education over a period over five years. The initial study found training worked and that it significantly reduced the rate in which the teen drivers got tickets. But a following study that analyzed the same data in a different way found the opposite. That in fact, the train group had 8% more crashes and 11% more road violations. These differences in findings come down to complex statistical analysis questions. But research have generally found the second study more convincing because it adjusted for the fact the train drivers were able to get their licenses sooner. Okay, interesting. So it's like it was taking the drivers, like, it wasn't measuring, it was measuring them over a five-year period, but the ones that took certain driving courses, I guess they were driving faster. And the control group that maybe had to self-train, and didn't, it's like they didn't get the easy pass version of it. They were only driving, you know, four years instead of five. Anyway, continues on through that tact. And I'm going to skip ahead because then it goes into the study of looking at other countries and how, you know, are, do they just have stricter tests because, you know, they don't have the number of, they don't have the problem with dri bad driving as well as, how was, uh, what am I thinking, death by cars as much, uh, but it's, it's, it just comes down to the fact that they're not car dependent. 
better system is likely one that embraces the lessons of GDLs, jettisons the idea of a one-size-fits-all test to prove competency, and instead demands ongoing responsibility and care from drivers throughout their entire driving lives. Here I envision a system that is more readily suspends licenses for increasing durations for repeatedly for repeated dangerous traffic violations like speeding, running a red light, fines, if they continue to exist, ought to be indexed to the driver's ability to pay, like they are in Scandinavia. But I am not naive about the prospects of that happening here. Namely, they are zero. Even in New York City, one of the few places in the U.S. people can, in fact, live a productive life without a license, holding dangerous drivers accountable for their actions is still quixotic quest. Whether they kill a pedestrian or a cyclist, or simply drive irresponsibly as a, as a matter of course, for example, a program that would force people with 15 speed camera or 5 red light tickets in a 12-month period, a tiny fraction of the population considering the high bar for recklessness, merely to attend a driver safety training, barely passed, but then was defunded during COVID, and is still a much weakened program than was initially proposed. So it was weak sauce to begin with. Eight, eight states have outright banned red light and other speed cameras, which would be critical enforcement tools. Of course, during the episode where I first mentioned this article, I went into how automating, you know, tra- giving out tra- traffic tickets is a way of stopping the racist violence of, of traffic stops and so on. Um, but still is an inherent violence in the system, so to speak. The U.S. is locked into an unhealthy system where driving is both one of the leading causes of injury and death and also an economic and social necessity. It is an irrational and unsustainable system, both economically and environmentally, so perhaps it is no surprise that all of the driving test is such a disaster. It is just one small part of such a disastrous system, with no real prospects on the horizon for significant reform. It is, in that way, a familiar problem. And thus, the problem itself is car dependency and chipping away at that in an aggressive manner is the way forward. And I think more people might be on board with that considering the elevated costs of driving. It's always been very cheap. It's always been something that the ruling class or you know, our system can foist on people. But obviously, between car loans and car insurance, it's actually for many working class and even middle class people something very unaffordable. Or you have to buy substandard insurance or the cheapest car insurance possible, which is why there's so many ads in that vein that use creepy advertising. (laughs) Okay, so for that, that is the end of this first hour. In the second hour, I will go into more transportation issues, particularly biking and busing. Uh, as well as respecting those that are not in cars, um, but particularly not the car, those that want to break free from car dependency.
Okay, and we're back for the second hour of the Three Left Show. I'm your host, Dan Platt. And I am covering the anguish of the cyclist uh, in me, but basically covering um, breaking from car dependency and the mindsets involved with that, talking about transit issues generally. Uh, first, yes. So I'll do this one first. It's very quick. It is simply a little local policy that uh, Barcelona in Spain is doing. They offer a swap. Ditch your car and get free, get free transportation. This is from My Modern Met, filed by a Madeline Uzakis, October of last year. People dream of traveling to Barcelona and traversing the medieval streets. Now the city is hoping that fewer cars will clog the legendary Spanish city with the introduction of a new initiative. In a major push for environmentalism, the city is offering an appealing trade. Citizens who trade in their gasoline-powered vehicles will receive a three-year free pass to the city's public transport options. The initiative is one of the many sweeping Europe in an aim to reduce carbon emissions. Some programs offer cash for clunkers, but in Barcelona, the city transit department is offering a different incentive. Citizens who trade in older, less fuel-efficient cars will receive a T-Verda. The card is a reward for decommissioning cars without an environmental certificate. It is non-transferable and automatically renewed at no charge for three years. Public transport is a fixed cost. Aside from infrastructure improvements, which can be made, buses and trains already exist and are sometimes underutilized. Usually are. Therefore, the citizens of Barcelona will save money by avoiding the costs of car ownership, such as gas and repairs, insurance. The city saves, too, on road repairs from wear, damages from accidents, and other costs associated with congestion or high traffic. This win-win scheme joins those of other European cities and countries. In Finland, trading in older cars can get one credits towards e-bikes and the e-car, uh, which isn't so much decommissioning cars on the road, though, which is why I like this one better. As gasoline power cars are a major emissions culprit, the more people that alter their transportation habits to become green, the better it is. Of course, that's the you know general line. Don't truly agree with that fully, but whatever. Uh, but that's it. That's literally just a few you know two paragraphs. So. Just want to get that out of the way. So first, by a this is a transportation, or rather alternative transportation advocate, a name, uh, Tim Courtney. And he, I believe it's in Denver. And it's called, my op- An Open Letter to My Pilot Friend Who Opposes My Safety as a Bicyclist. Dear Friend, We've known each other a long time. Something's bothering me about the way you treat me online. I share a lot about how dangerous American streets are for people outside of cars. It's not simply a part of my identity. It's my life. I bike and walk for transportation, and the streets could one day kill me. Your comments aren't helping. I share about systemic issues and individual behavior. Sometimes I highlight facts. I also reframe issues. Other times, I ran about the danger cars pose because I was almost killed by a negligent driver. I like to think my posts give people a different perspective on something that affects them every day. The other day, I shared a pic of my bike sticker, Cars Are Deaf Machines. I got it from my favorite podcast, and you'll love this, The War on Cars. It's a provocative statement, and it's true. I should probably check that podcast out. You were quick to comment, and I was quick to delete. It was a not-today-Satan kind of day on my post on my rules. I wish I had screenshotted it, though, and it read slump, but it read something like this. Funny how I've never seen someone who commutes by car show up to work with a broken collarbone. Which uh, reminds me of a little political cartoon also, which is uh, Protect Your Kids. From, yeah, it's like Protect Your Kids with this SUV. And it's basically... <laughs> It's like your kids in the SUV, and then like the SUV is running over a kid, and it's like other kids. As mad as I am at your derision, I'm also kind of impressed. Why? Because I've never seen you some co- so close to the come to the point you miss it by so much. Your comment was surprisingly self-aware. What could possibly break a psych- bicyclist's collarbone? It's kind of how reactionary politics works. Coming very close to the point, but completely missing it because of some bias or fear or discomfort. I know you don't like the V word, but it's an awfully blamey language. 
Was the bicyclist asking for it? They weren't wearing a car, which all good Americans know is the appropriate two tons of armor around their bodies. Do you hear what that sounds like? Now, are you okay? Now, are you okay with people getting injured or killed on our streets if they're outside of a car? If I was hit and killed on my bike, would you blame me for my own death? I'm angry at you and disappointed in you, friend. Over the years, you've taken exception, sometimes even personal offense, to my posts and statements about dangerous streets and the impacts of cars. I imagine as soon as I get on those two wheels, you stop seeing me as a person worthy of safety, perhaps even life. I'm bewildered to notice your comments are at odds with the discipline that you have cultivated in your profession, which is being a pilot. Not, a, not long after we met, you graciously took me on a flight along Lake Michigan that inspired me to earn my certificate a few years later. It was a personal highlight to fly the single-engine Cherokee 800 nautical miles back to Chicago and take you up on a similar flight. During my training, I learned all about aviation safety culture. The industry takes a systemic approach to accident prevention. I learned the checklists, procedures, regulations, and even aircraft and cockpits were designed around preventing crashes. The industry has learned from thousands of tragic deaths over a century of flight. Countless people have investigated root causes, designed safer systems, and trained for safety. In aviation, you know that any accident is everyone's accident. Take just one example, the right-of-way rules. The most maneuver maneuverable aircraft are required to give way to the least one. How would one apply the principles of aviation's right-of-way rules to our city streets? The largest and most powerful vehicles should give way to the smallest and most vulnerable. People walking, children, elderly, disabled, and people on bikes or scooters. The greater the size and power of the vehicle, the greater its operator's responsibility for the safety of others around them. And thus, the reality that cars are death machines. In 2019, there were 36,000 fatalities for motor vehicle crashes. Over half were occupants in the cars and SUVs. 14% were motorcyclists, 17% pedestrians, 2% were on bicycles. Taking those last two figures, one in five people killed by motor vehicles weren't even in one. Motor vehicle transportation is 750 times more dangerous per passenger mile than commercial aviation. 750 times. Why would we accept that? How much safer do you think our streets could be if we applied a disciplined, scientific, and systemic approach like we do to aviation safety? Until we get there, consider that it might be better to get upset at the problem that the peop than the person calling it out. It's time to constrain the carnage they're capable of through road design, vehicle design, and other systemic approaches. The NTSB is coming around. The new chairman is calling for a safe system approach. It's a start. This recent article summarizes the reasons car violence is such an intractable feature of American life. I'm just going to click to see what article this refers to. It is America's car crash epidemic. Driving kills as many Americans each year as guns. And experts say it's preventable. I don't think it is, though. I think the only way is, is, to, is to have people driving less, less car dependent. But it would be interesting to see like what kind of innovations and um, how can we make car driving more like plane piloting. It isn't something like... Because really, when it comes to driving... It's like getting in a go-kart and speeding around. It's, or, or, or like the kids in the, in the Power Wheels uh, toy cars mentioned before in the last hour. That, that's how I see people drive around, really. Even supposedly safe, good drivers. I mean, it's, it's, it's this, air, um, this thought that when you do enough of something, you do it on autopilot. You're not... Like it's actually it's uh I've I've seen it referred that safe driving is actually when you don't have to think about what you're doing, that you're just doing it automatically, which scares the bejesus out of me, because when I'm driving, I'm, wouldn't say hypersensitive, but it's an it's an anxious experience for me because I'm, in 
flight mode or fight or flight mode the whole time trying to an attempt to pay attention to everything or as much as possible so I don't miss something and die or kill someone. Let's see. But instead, you took yet another swipe at me that day because I bike and because I'm outspoken about protecting people on bikes. Why oppose your friend's safety? It's probably not about me. It's about you. Maybe you don't want to see someone cheating in traffic, getting from A to B faster than you for the cost of a single car payment, exercising in the process. Perhaps deep down you wish you could ride too, but you're too afraid of a car hitting you. I don't blame you, but I do ask for respect. There are many reasons people don't ride. Some people can't. Some people need to go long distances, and cars are scary when you're not in one. I respect anyone who chooses not to ride as long as they don't oppose the safety of people who do. We all weigh different safety factors when it comes to transport. I ride also knowing the health benefits of physical activity outweigh the safety risks somewhere between 9 and 96 to 1. Still, I'd rather die changing how we get around than live preserving the status quo. Now, that that's... That's a radical call for me, uh, to me, to say that, you know, I'd rather die changing things than live preserving the status quo. Truly, but words live by. I understand not everyone is willing to make that wager, and all I ask of them is not to resist a fundamental rebalancing of the transportation mix that saves lives and benefits everyone in the long run. I ground my stand in our inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, outlined in the Declaration of Independence. These rights apply no matter whether someone is walking, riding a bicycle, on the bus, or in a motor, motor vehicle. The current way our streets are designed works against that right. To work towards ensuring these rights for all means naming and framing the killer, motor vehicles, and the street design that enables their carnage. Try not to take it personally. I'm not calling you out. I'm calling a system out. I don't need your approval. What I demand is you respect my humanity and my right to live, no matter what mode of transportation I choose. Here's how you can be a friend. Value my life in your words and in your actions behind the wheel. Open yourself to the notion that the same factors that drive systemic safety in aviation drive systemic danger on our streets. Your friend, Tim. So Tim Courtney is a guy on a bike in Oakland, California. He campaigns against dangerous streets and car violence, so people can get around safely on two feet or two wheels. You can follow him on Twitter. And he has a safe 8th Street campaign, which is probably some kind of road diet. Now, on the subject of road diets and what it really means to... Road diets are mostly about, like, um, slowing cars down by shrinking the width of the car lane, which does do something, but not enough, in my opinion, because um, we had something of a road diet. We have a... Main Street here in Albany, Delaware Avenue, and it got completely revamped, but it was revamped without any bike infrastructure because the um, design, it was one of the shovel-ready projects during the Obama-era stimulus back in 09. And shovel-ready because it was already designed. It was designed in the aughts, uh, meaning it didn't have bike lanes in it. <laughs> and it was only after it was finished or construction had started and everybody and all the local politicos were like cheering that the bike coalition stepped up to sign wave and sit and show up to the press conference and basically say like, I think you forgot somebody Jacko. And to this day, it's, it's a nicer street and it's in the, and the, it's held up as far as it hasn't cracked and broken. Like all the repavings around town that have you know, already been cracked up by both ice and massive uh, car driving but the lanes are narrow you know they're they're like 10 feet instead of 11 or 12 feet and it means there's very little room for bikes meaning there's no room actually it's all meant to be bike and lane which really sucks because it's just the two lanes each way and it doesn't really slow people down when there's like unless there's a lot of cars on it people are going like the full speed limit of like 3035, which this is a very urban street with a lot of people that are crossing here and there. And I think it needs to be slower. You know, people need to slow the hell down. 
And that's kind of usually done, um, at least like New York City has announced. I don't have a, the story pulled up, but I can paraphrase it. That they are going to install, like, I think they're going to start with 90 uh, bump intersections where you raise the intersection up a foot or half a foot. So it basically makes a speed bump the size of the intersection itself. So it's like a big plateau. And that means that when you get to an intersection, you pretty much have to slow down to roughly you know, 15, 20 miles per hour. I mean, or 10, ideally. But um, but it makes it like not a full-way, full, you know, a four-way stop, but at least like a, a four-way yield. Like you have to slow your speed down even when you have the right-of-way. And I really like that a lot. I kind of want a lot of that around my city, especially on the streets that are both urban and uh, but straight. You know, we have a lot of straight avenues and stuff, but if you, it's hard to keep a road or rather a street from becoming a, a, a road. A road goes from A to B and is meant to be transport you as fast as possible. A street is a place that's meant to be lived in that cars and other things can travel on. But so many of our avenues and, and streets, quote unquote streets in, in uh, many American cities, are actually strodes. They have the worst aspects of both, or rather they combine the best of both, which destroys the function of either. A strode is like, okay, so you have a road that allows cars to go, you know, 35 or 40, and but they also have all this commercial on it that people are driving in and out of. So you get a lot of crashes, a lot of T-bones, a lot of rear ends, a lot of deaths. So following from that, I have from Streets Blog USA a article about bike lane safety. Pretty much focusing on that separated bike lanes mean safer streets study says. Now this is a long haul one that was done over 13 years in a dozen cities that found that protected bike lanes led to a drastic decline in fatalities for all users of the road. Written by an Aaron Short. May of 2019. I've been sitting on some of these articles for quite a while. These are my catch-up or wind-down shows where I kind of go through all the articles I've collected over the last two or three years in an effort to move on to my the next portion and the next journey of this show where I do local news and analysis or in actually interviews too. Cities that build protected lanes for cyclists end up with safer roads for people on bikes and people in cars and on foot, a new study of 12 large metro areas revealed Wednesday. Researchers at the University of Colorado, Denver, and University of New Mexico discovered cities with protected and separated bike lanes had 44% fewer deaths than the average city. Not quite Vision Zero. Not, I'm pretty sure Vision Zero is a complete boondoggle until we solve the issue of car dependency. Protected separated bike facilities was one of our biggest factors associated with lower fatalities and lower injuries for all road users. Study co-author Wesley Marshall, Colorado Denver engineering professor, told Streets Blog, if you're going out of your way to make your city safe for a broader range of cyclists, refining it ends up being a safer city for everyone. Marshall and his team of researchers analyzed 17,000 fatalities and 77,000 severe injuries in cities including Denver, Portland, Dallas, Seattle, San Fran, Kansas City, and Chicago between 2000 and 2012. All had experienced an increase in cycling as they built more infrastructure. Now, update, all those cities also have varying rates of gentrification, which needed to be factored into the results specifically because of the, quote, the safety disparities associated with it. Researchers said safety improvements in largely gentrified areas suggest equity issues and the need for further research. Now, researchers assume that having more cyclists on the street was spurring drivers to slow down, a relic of a 2017 study that found that cities with high cycling rates had fewer traffic crashes, but it turned out that wasn't the case. Instead, Researchers found that bike infrastructure, particularly physical barriers that separate bikes from speeding cars, 
as opposed to shared or painted lanes, significantly lowered fatalities in cities that installed them. But I want to put in context here for myself and my city of Albany that we have yet to have an, any separated bike lane. It's all been either painted lanes, which are the fewest, and uh, sharrows for every other major major street. With, I think, the exception of Central, which has nothing. You're just not meant to cycle on that thing, and I never do. I would I avoid it at all costs. Not only because of it being a strode with a lot of car traffic, people who want to get down as fast as possible. It's I call it. I would I I consider it the highway in our city, and I I, I it needs fundamental reform of a type to. Make it so that people are not using that or other roads, county routes, basically, to just move for move through Albany. I've covered in previous episodes the Gun Plan and how I think we should subdivide our avenues uh, or neighborhoods into kind of areas so that you basically can't drive through Albany. You're either driving to a specific neighborhood in Albany or not at all. You know, you're using the ring road to get to various places in Albany, nothing else. Keep it on the ring, because nobody's walking there. After analyzing traffic crash data for a 13-year period in areas which, with separated bike lanes on city streets, researchers estimated that having a protected bike facility in a city would result in 44% fewer deaths and 50% fewer serious injuries than the average city. In Portland, where the population of bike commuters increased from 1.2 to 7 percent between 1990 and 2015, fatality rates fell 75 percent in the same period. Fatal crash rates dropped 60 percent in Seattle, about 50 percent in San Fran, 40 percent in Denver, 38 percent in Chicago over the same period, as cities added more protected and separated lanes as part of their Vision Zero plans. Bike facilities end up slowing cars down even when a driver hits another driver. It's less likely to be a fatality because it's happening at a slower speed. Perhaps even more important, researchers found that painted bike lanes provided... Okay, and here's the important thing that I need to scream at my uh, local policymakers. More importantly, researchers found that painted bike lanes provided no improvement on road safety. And their review earlier this year of shared roadways where bike symbols are painted in the middle of a lane revealed that it was actually safer to have none, to have no bike markings at all. We found that it's worse than nothing. You're better off doing nothing, Marshall says. It gives people a false sense of security that's a bike lane. It's just a sign telling cyclists that, you know, that they might be there. Not all protected bike lanes provide the same level of security for cyclists and drivers, though. In Denver, for instance, some protected lanes have plastic bollards, like uh, big um, traffic cones, that are interspersed along, interspersed along the roadway, allowing cars and trucks to park in the bike path and forcing cyclists to swerve into the street. When you have them designed like that, even if it's a protected lane, That might create a more dangerous situation because cyclists are merging in and out of the road versus places with foot-wide concrete planters, Marshall added. New York was not included in this longitudinal study because the high number of cyclists in lanes would have overwhelmed their models, but will be be a focus of a future study. Marshall said, New York's Department of Transportation consistently touts how its protected bike lanes improve safety for all road users, but often denies neighborhoods the full protection of such infrastructure when some car owners complain of lost parking. Sometimes it's not always safety first. Ain't that America? This is America. So I have a full half an hour left. So basically my streaming folder are all like architecture related because my uh, I had an idea last year to kind of just do uh, streams where I just kind of cover architecture for educational purposes and and fun, um, but I think that was before fall, and then I started working full time, so that just got thrown out the window. Okay, let's just do these two and see where we go from there. 
this is going to bleed into the urbanism section. Um, these are things that just wouldn't fit, um, and so on. So, this is from Dominus or Damos, which is a it's an architecture magazine, but it covers urban issues. Now, this is um, usually like covering succeeding or new novel policies, like. But this is here's here's one where it didn't work out. So, uh, going in Paris, the and again, all of these, um, the next two stories are Europe-focused. <laughs> but, um, but hey, look, I just talked about how, sh- you know, how crap American culture is with car dependency and, stu- and such. But things that can and must happen here in America, small reforms. So anyway, in this, in Paris, the vegetation permit didn't work out. So the council, led by Anne Hidalgo, is revoking the authorization that allowed Parisians to garden the flower beds surrounding the French capital's trees. So, so think think in your city or your urban block. There's a tree. There is a plot of soil around it, roughly maybe a few feet in diameter. Now, a good city will probably have landscaping around these trees that's maintained by the city's general services department. DGS, as we call, as we have, Department of General Services. In New York, we have Office of General Services that does a lot that covers all of that. And this would give, um, and I've probably covered here and there the kind of guerrilla gardening where if you have a meridian of dirt that's just lawn or, if worse, just dirt and there's not not even grass, um, people kind of just plant stuff there and they they fill it themselves. And this was a, a Parisian policy to kind of institutionalize that, which is sort of the way you kind of want things to go in that direction, to officialize it, to make make it so that the worst thing that could possibly happen is you, you have guerrilla gardens and guerrilla landscaping, meaning people just do it without permission, without a permit. And, uh, the, and because of that, the city actually t- destroys what people make. Sort of like treating any kind of public art as like graffiti even when it's obviously not graffiti <laughs> but obviously graffiti is a, also a form of public art when it's nice of high quality so anyway to the story published uh february of this year so it's recent authored by a, a julia zappa the uh, utopia of the citizen gardener collides with reality in paris the famous and equally controversial permit de vegetation has been withdrawn. Since 2015, this permit had allowed applicants to foster and cultivate the patches of land surrounding street trees. The do-it-yourself urban green initiative was part of a broader policy of adopting or adapting the urban fabric to the effects of global warming. More specifically, the enlargement of the uh, and their transformation into flower beds for cultivation into a corollary to encouraging the progressive demineralization of public land fancy term for removing portions of asphalt which encourages encourages greater transpiration of the soil basically depaving so there's more nature <laughs> why don't they just say that they could say that which counteracts heat islands and period in periods of intense heat on top of that, a hope for fulfillment was expected to arise from the multiplication of green areas and the collective and participatory management of urban territory, which is something that community and you know so pseudo-anarchistic people really harp about, that it can be done horizontally, uh, that the management and the maintenance of society can be done in a decentralized manner, just allow people access and permission to do things and they will that's the principle anyway but this version of it has been revoked the decision comes in the face of a long controversy from the opposition also fueled by electoral speculation given that france will be voting in two months for the presidential elections and the mayor of paris is also the candidate of the socialist party however by the way, in France, the Socialist Party is actually like the Democrats. They're actually the neoliberal party, which is just bonkers, right? But such is um, Eurocommunism, as it's called, where left-wing parties basically became the liberal party. However, political controversy is not the only factor that has influenced the choice. 
Anarchic and not subject to any constraints, this form of bottom-up gardening has found its limits in a certain amateurish effect and in the poor continuity of the green thumbs of Parisians, too inclined to abandon their flower beds after the initial rush. You, know, you can get some buy-in, but do you get commitment? And this is where, well, if people are going to do socially valuable labor, like garden beds, maybe they should be paid for it. <laughs> that would be what I feel is, uh, or assume is missing here. People are not just going to do it for the love of it, at least they could initially, or for the short term, but for the long term, there's going to be burnout. But of course, if the complaints are only that like some of it was amateurish, like they're just starting out, or they don't know what they're doing, they're not professional gardeners, they're making mistakes, or like if, like if you go by my experience, right, where I volunteer with the garden, and I was really lazy with it. I would just I would go once a week, if even, to water and weed, and uh, that just isn't enough. So it's just also kind of a we have busy lives, and if it's not like right in front of your house, you know, it's which maybe is the case in Paris, but it wasn't with me. So the garden bed that I had assigned to myself didn't do so well. You know, I was able to I was able to collect some edible weeds but other and i did have some kale that i could um which just grows no matter what but there are some things that needed help and more water and um didn't do well i didn't get those green beans what else was uh i growing i think it was i was trying to grow lettuce and it just wasn't watered enough so yeah so there's an example of that myself left to themselves and now without the historic iron grates that covered the patches around the trees, the flower beds have often turned into forgotten corners, a receptacle for rubbish and the uncontrolled or desolate growth of plants not always suitable to the local climate. So some would just kind of let, I don't know, weeds grow there and just let it go wild, which I'm, I'm actually okay with. But, you know, it's obviously the litter is, is an offense to me. An image uh, that has led itself to numerous attacks. In addition to degradation, the uh, vegetable uh, gardening permits have been identified as a catechism towards the lack of uniformity that has always distinguished the Parisian streets and its furniture, still strongly linked to the Haussmannian heritage. So here's where I'm getting a little more skeptical of like where this, um, not the article's coming from, but obviously it's like, okay, they're getting this opposition. It's being revoked because of public pressure, because obviously making the gardening of the street tree patches decentralized means they're all going to be different and they're going to be kooky and they're not going to be uniform. And that's something people are complaining about because Parisian streets have this heritage of being part of a, there's a grand plan, which is what House Manian refers to. Uh, back in, 18, in the 1860s, there was the Houseman Plan, which is what destroyed the inner core of Paris, where you had streets that were narrow and complex and easy to barricade and set up you know, choke points and, and rebellions in. Uh, instead, um, bulldozed entire blocks to create the broad avenues that Paris is known for. Avenues you can march troops down. <laughs> And you can't barricade them, which makes the city, like, indefensible. <laughs> which proved to be, you know, very, very fortunate for the government during, you know, it made the Paris Commune kind of helped it be short-lived because it, it was hard to defend the city. Anyway, besides all that, there is no point, however, in failing to see the return of experience to a misunderstood attitude. While all Parisians, especially after the pandemic, declare themselves in favor of the multiplication of the green, city greenery, few found the time and inclination to take care of it. Oh, they couldn't find the time. Well, maybe everyone is overworked and overburdened with other work to do. And here is where is the general socialist policy of not so much uni having universal basic income, but the guarantee of universal basic services. Services like electricity, housing, healthcare, education, freeing up one's income to actually go towards the finer things in life 
or rather freeing up one to not have to work two jobs or a full-time job even, but just working enough for the fulfillment of one's desires because services and housing and health care and all the things that Americans have to spend oodles and oodles of money and on is gone or it's taken care of through the production in society via taxation if we're still talking about you know doing democratic socialism which is you know what the horizon of the possible i'm waving my hand like okay but dovetailing with that would be people need more time to do the socially valuable labor to garden to take care of the um elderly that we know our elder family members or children in that way you know services universal services like child care would also need to be included in that list because people have to work all day and they can't take care of their kids but what if we actually just like how we unions we unionize enough and just as a century ago they fought and won the weekend you know before you you would be lucky if you if you had Sunday off. But to have a whole nother day off, to have two days off a week, that was something that 150 years ago would be madness, impossible. How, how would the economy function if people had two days off? Well, Euronews.next provides an example of what is possible. Belgium approves four-day week and gives employees the right to ignore their bosses after work. This is a wonderful story I found. Written by Tom Bateman. And this was two months ago. Workers in Belgium will soon be able to choose a four-day week under a series of labor market reforms announced on Tuesday. And this is something that is just unheard of, the phrase labor market reform. We don't reform labor markets we deregulate them. We technocrats um, innovate the, the labor market by creating the gig economy. Now, labor market reforms. The reform package agreed by the country's multi-party coalition government. Wink, wink, needed political reform. That's, for us Americans, revolutionary and probably requires a revolution to enact. But they have it in Belgium, so... They uh, passed a reform package that will give workers the right to turn off work devices and ignore work-related messages after hours without fear of reprisal, something many people in America have a problem with with their jobs, which would, um, should be con- uh, is and ought to be considered unpaid labor or unpaid overtime. We have experienced two difficult years. With this arrangement, we set a beacon for an economy that is more innovative, sustainable, and digital. The aim is to be able to make people and businesses stronger. This was the Belgian Prime Minister, Alexander de Croo, who told a press conference announcing the reform package. Workers in the gig economy will also receive stronger legal protections under the new rules, while full-time employees will be able to work flexible schedules on demand. Putting the reforms into law could take months, However, as the draft legislation must pass multiple readings by federal lawmakers before being enacted. This addresses the needs of a work-life balance. A significant portion of Belgium's new labor reforms impact the work-life balance of employees in both the public and private sectors. The draft reform package agreed by the country's federal government will grant employees the ability to request a four-day week. Request. Well, does that mean they'll actually get it? Will the employers drag their feet? Hey, at least it creates uh, opportunities for such conflict. This has to be done at the request of the employee, with the employer giving solid reasons for any refusal. Belgian Labor Minister Pierre Yves, Pierre Yves Demarge, told the press conference. A government spokesperson confirmed to Euronews.next that employees would be able to ask to work four days a week for a period of six months. After that, they could choose to continue the arrangement or return to five days with no negative consequences. The period of six months was chosen so that an employee would not be stuck for too long in case of a wrong choice. Under the Belgian system, 
employees would be able to condense the current five-day week into four days. In practice, this means maintaining a 38-hour work week with an additional day off compensating for longer work days. So it's still the same number of hours. It's still full-time, but it condensed into four days, which is a question that was actually posed to me. Like, Dan, would you, you know, because I I opined about how I would like a four-day week. Like, well, would you accept one if it meant that you were working nine to ten hours a day instead of eight? And shifting those those eight hours on Monday to, or Wednesday it would be, taking two hours and placing them on each, each of the others. And I'm like, I don't know. I'd have to think hard about it. Considering that most of my weeknights like doing this show, I'm doing something for two hours that I consider to be a type of labor. Which this is why I feel overworked, even though I'm just doing a four, you know, a five day full hour job, full time job, I mean. But it's like I'm more I'm working more than that. Because I do all these projects. It's socially valuable labor versus the my job, which I also can Consider socially valuable labor, so, but it's more in the bureaucratic mode instead of the, you know, direct action, cool stuff. So workers will be able to request viable work schedules. The minimum notice period for shifts is also changing, with companies now required to provide schedules at least seven days in advance. You're lucky if you have a job that does that. This would benefit those who wish to spend more time with their children the Prime Minister said in a statement, or the Labor Minister, adding that the proposals would be especially helpful for divorced or separated parents who share custody of their children. And last, a few more items here. Put the phone down. In January, civil servants working for Belgium's federal government were given the right to disconnect, allowing them to turn off work devices and ignore messages after hours without reprisals from bosses. Now all Belgian workers, including those in the private sector, have the same rights. Now that's solidarity. The boundary between work and private life is becoming increasingly porous. These incessant demands can harm the physical and mental health of the worker, he said. What kind of government is this? In practice, the new law will apply to all employers with more than 20 staff. Employers will be expected to negotiate with trade unions to include the right to disconnect in collective agreements, which I'm sure Belgium has a lot of. Platform work regulated. Last section. Reform package also takes aim at the gig economy, with workers for platforms like Uber, Deliveroo, and Just Eat Takeaway, receiving insurance against work-related injuries and clear rules defining who is and is not self-employed. Belgium's new labor reforms add to a proposed European Union directive, which sets out five criteria for judging whether or not a gig worker should be considered employee. In Belgium, platform workers meeting three out of eight possible criteria. Okay, it does list them here. So the criteria for being a full-time, an actual employee includes those whose work performance is monitored, who are unable to refuse jobs, or whose pay is decided by the company, will now be considered employees whose rights to sick, with rights to sick leave and pay time off. The rules do not prevent anyone from working as a freelancer or contractor, Social Affairs Minister Frank Vergluck says. They don't prevent anyone from being a freelancer. If someone wants to work as a self-employed person, they can do so and will have more autonomy. And that's how it ends. Because it's the news. So this has been been a rather slapdash episode. My slapdash life. I'm in a phase of my life right now. Things are more in flux than usual. Uh, as I'm also trying to move forward and, and keep things, um, keep my head on straight and um, figure out what's next and how, or how that transition is going to happen. My profound thanks for listening, which is a skill as important as talking. So I plan to listen to any constructive feedback, ideas for the show, or stories or topics you'd like to hear discussed via social media on Facebook, Twitter, at three lefts. That's my social media pages. Check us out. Like, share, subscribe, leave reviews. I don't think I have any reviews on any of the podcasting apps that the show is found on, which it is. 
And maybe it doesn't help that um, the full series aren't up, like they're not available. It's just the last ten. I don't know what I have to do to uh, make those available. But all past episodes can be found on the website, threelefts.news. You can also support this show materially via donation or subscription, uh, via LibrePay or Patreon, which I haven't checked in too long. <laughs> um, but also, uh, but more to the point, this uh, program is made part of an independent community radio station. So please support that materially with a donation or membership to WCAALP at GrantStreetArts.org. You can also, more importantly, support this uh, show by sharing it with others, telling others that it exists and what you liked about it, and so on. Of course, the most important thing to do is to put the ideas, the thinking, and the projects talked about here in practice yourself. So be well, keep it rad, and keep waving the flags of the three laughs.